All right, so here's where I want to begin. I want to kind of start very, very broad and um, kind of summarize where we've been, okay? To remind, uh, we need, I think we need to be reminded that we've been studying the book of Ephesians for a while now, <laughs> uh, since really all the way to January. That's, that's a long time. And if you can even remember back that far, there was once in Ephesians chapter one that we studied together. And this is how I want you to think about it. If I just think about the entire Bible, what's the Bible about? There's a lot of ways that you could describe what the Bible is about. If you're going to summarize the Bible in a sentence, here's one way I want to give you this morning. The Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is about God's promise to redeem the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. You see that promise all the way in Genesis a promise given to Abraham that he would be our God and we would be his people. You see that promise in Revelation chapter 21 when Jesus Christ returns to make all things new and we're told, I will be your God, you will be my people. That's the promise. This great covenant promise that God has given us through his son, Jesus Christ. So as you think about uh, the book of Ephesians, And our title that we gave this series, Generous God, Generous Church, that's the generosity we're talking about. That God has lavished us with his promises, with his grace. And that's really where the book of Ephesians begins. So chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us of God's plan, his promise, what he's going to do to restore all things to himself. We are told he's going to unite all things to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that every single one of us, every man in this room is so deeply affected by sin that we are dead. We are not sick. Uh, We are not just hurt by sin, but uh, we're not just crippled by sin but we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet God has raised us with his son, Jesus. Chapter 3, we're told, uh, Paul tells us that this salvation that we've been given is not just personal. It's not just an individual salvation. Yes, it is a blessing and a grace for us as individual men. Yes, we have a now a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but it's not personal to us only. It's communal. That uh, Jesus came to save his bride, a people. He's come for his church, and we are united together as a church through Jesus. The church is not something that you go to. Church is not something you attend. Church is who you are. You are the church If you know Jesus Christ this morning, even if you hate the idea of church, I'm sorry you don't have a choice. You are part of the church, and we are called to be united together as we are united in Jesus. Chapter 4, Paul tells us that every single one of us has been gifted through the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, he's given us gifts to serve the church, right? to build up the body. And each one of us is a minister. We talked about how you might not have realized that, that ministry is for all Christians, not just for pastors like me. It's why I refuse to be called a minister, if by that you mean I'm different than any of you. I've been given a calling as a pastor, 
but all of us are ministers of the gospel. We've all been called to ministry in very different ways. Uh, for me as a pastor to lead God's people, for you, uh, however you are serving in this church or your particular church where you are, are um, for you as dads, those of you who are fathers, you are called to that ministry. Uh, for you who are friends and roommates, you are called to that ministry. For you who are workers, you are called to that ministry. We are all called to ministry to build up the body and to his mission. Uh, chapter five, these last few weeks, we've seen how Paul started very broad, right? God, God's great cosmic plan to unite all things to himself, and he slowly worked his way narrowly. To where, how does this apply? Remember, here's what God's done for you. The indicative precedes the imperative. Here's what you are supposed to do with this. And so we've looked at marriage. How does this all of its work its way out through marriage? Uh, we've looked at uh, family life. What does it look like to have families? What does it look like to be sons? What does it look like to be fathers? What does it look like to build up a family? And then finally, uh, we also looked at work. What does, it call, what does it look like to apply all of this in our everyday work? This morning, here's the question that we have. Given all that we've heard, all that we've learned, this great cosmic plan that God has given us to unite all things to himself, applied all the way down to just even our everyday, every moment, what it looks like for us to go to work as men. What happens when you hear all of that, okay? And you know that you've been given promises. And you know that God is good and who he's, and he's, all that he does is good. You hear that. And you hear that he has this plan to unite all things to himself and to right every wrong, to make all things new, to draw the lost to himself and to give you life in Christ. What happens when you hear that but you don't feel it? What happens when the reality is you go into life in a place like work or your family or your marriage or your lack of marriage and you're longing for it. And you say, I hear these promises that God has given me, but I just don't see them happening. If you feel that way this morning, you're not alone. It's how Abraham felt when God gave him his promise. God gave him a promise to give him not just a family, but offspring as many as you could even see stars in the sky. And yet Abraham couldn't have kids. He questioned God's promise because of a circumstance. We do the same thing every single day. But brothers, what I want us to see this morning is that this wrestle, this fight between hearing the promises of God and then what we face every single day as men is a real struggle that is much deeper and much more spiritual than any of us recognize. We are in a daily fight, a daily fight to really take up the promises of the gospel and actually live them out. And every single day when we wake up as men, we enter into this battle. The question is, are you even fighting the battle? Have you already given up? Are you spiritually lazy this morning and refuse to even fight? Or on the flip side, are you going out trying to fight this battle in your own strength? Trying to conquer your own sin? Trying to be a good Christian? To do it right? 
all the while not recognizing that you are fighting with the wrong weapons and you are losing. What does it look like for us to fight this spiritual battle every single day? What does it look like for us to fight in the Lord? So this morning, Paul's going to give us four different commands of what it looks like for us to fight. I want you to look at these commands and what they're like because they're not how you might think, okay? Four commands of what it looks like to fight the fight of faith. The first command is this, be strong, okay? Be strong. I want you to look at Ephesians 6 verse 10. It's there on your handout. He says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Now, when I say be strong, what do you think about? What, co- what images come up in your mind? Have you ever thought about being strong? Have you ever thought of yourself as a man who is strong? Not necessarily physically strong, but, you know, the kind of strength that co- we co- talk about, like fortitude, being mentally tough, emotionally tough, right? That anything that comes our way as men, we can be strong. We can handle it. We're unflappable, right? Um, we're not easily um, drawn off sides, as some might say. But no, we're strong. The question is, where does that strength come from? And I wonder how many of you this morning, if you're going to be honest and, and stop long enough, would recognize that you are exhausted from trying to be strong every single day. How many of you are tired from daily trying to be strong for yourself, for your friends, for your coworkers, for your wife, for your kids? How many of you have ever said that? I just need to be strong for fill in the blank. The truth is, brothers, you and I have learned, I think, from a, long, from a very young age that culturally to be a man is to be strong, right? That in our communities, in our families, we're the ones who are supposed to have it all together. And I think deep down we're dying inside. We are exhausted from trying to be strong. The Apostle Paul is calling you to put on a different strength. Notice what he says. He says, be strong in the Lord. And if you're thinking, well, what does that mean? Then he says, be strengthened with the strength of his might. Well, what is the strength of his might? I want you to go back to Ephesians 1. I want you to remember Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. This is his prayer. You can turn there, Ephesians 1, 18, or you can just listen. You can write this down, Ephesians 1, 18 through 21. This is Paul's prayer. I want you to listen for how Paul wants them to be strong. He says that your eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one that is age to come. So brothers, where does your strength come from? 
Paul says we need to be strong in the strength of his might. What is his might? It's the might and power of the resurrection. The same might and power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells in you. And Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, way back in Ephesians 1, is that the Ephesian church and now us who read this letter would understand, not just intellectually, but experientially, what the resurrection has done for us. That we would be strong through the strength of the resurrection. So practically, what does that look like? So you hear, I think, again, from a young age, we need to be strong as men. And then when we become Christians, if you're a Christian this morning, then you hear you need to be a strong Christian, okay? And somewhere in there, you begin to believe that what that means is you need to be strong like Jesus, okay? We need to be strong like Jesus. This is strength by imitation, okay? And that's what you think the Christian life is. And the way that Jesus was strong, we need to be strong. We need to be like him. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know the last time you really tried to live like Jesus. How did that go for you? <laughs> and again, I'm not saying that he should not, we should not try to aspire to that or that's not this. Look, I'm not saying that. But again, think about how Ephesians, we've been trying to teach you, the indicative precedes the imperative. If you start with the imperative, if you start with just be strong on your own, you will crash and burn. The strength that we have from Jesus is not through imitation, okay? The strength that we have from Jesus is through incarnation. Incarnation, not imitation. What does that mean? It means we don't look at Jesus, we say, oh, I need to be like him. We look at Jesus and say, this is what Jesus has done for me. This is what Jesus has already done. This is what Jesus has already given me. This is strength through the incarnation. Strength through imitation is Christ as our example. Okay, strength through incarnation is seeing Christ as your substitute. He lived for you, he died for you, he rose for you. So be strong in him, not in yourself, be strong in Christ. That's the first thing. Second, we need to stand. So first, be strong. Second, stand. Stand against the schemes of the devil. Look at verse 11. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We'll talk more about the armor in just a second. The first thing I just want to say is this. Notice it says the armor of God. It's not your armor. Put on the armor of God. And what you need to recognize is that throughout the Bible, God is described as lots of different things. But one of the uh, characteristics of God you might not have thought about a whole lot is that God is a warrior. In the Bible, we see that God is described as a warrior. And I don't have time to go all the different places in the Old Testament where he's described as a warrior. But let me just give you one, Psalm 24, verse 8. And again, this points to Jesus, who is the ultimate warrior, the one who won our victory on the cross. Psalm 24, verse 8 says, Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Jesus, our king, is a warrior. He has gone to battle. He is mighty in battle. And he's already won the war. We know how the war ends in the book of Revelation. There is strength in that, brothers. We know how this war ends. 
And so Paul says, stand, stand, put on the armor of God, put on the armor of the warrior, put on the armor of Jesus Christ, not your own, put on the armor of Christ so that you could stand against the schemes of the devil. The second thing I want you to know about this, what it looks like to stand, is this isn't going to make sense to you unless you recognize that the devil is real. And I think all of us as as men need to reckon with that this morning. I want you to begin to ask yourself, what do you actually believe about the devil? Do you believe that there is a devil? Do you believe that the devil is real? C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters, I don't know if you've ever read it before, it would be a great summer read. It was originally just published as a series of articles in an Anglican magazine. In fact, that magazine got so many um, comments begging them to stop the publication because it was just too dark and it was just too vivid. And what they were was, it's a fictional um, kind of short story each chapter of two demons, Screwtape and Wormwood, And one demon training the other demon on how to tempt us as people. And I want you to listen. This is one of those temptations. If any faint suspicion of your existence, so again, this is one demon to another. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights, and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he cannot believe in you. In other words, you have one demon saying to the other, here's a great temptation. If he begins to believe that you're real, I want you to put in his mind an image of this devil in red tights with a pitchfork. I want you to make him think that that is so comical, so far-fetched, That because he can't believe in that, you must not exist. When I say the word devil this morning, what do you picture? What do you imagine in your mind? Do you think about like at Halloween, a costume that looks like the devil, with horns and a pitchfork dressed in red? In other words, has has the devil just become so outlandish, so far-fetched like a comic book villain, that you think that's just it can't be true. Again, statistics. Um, what, what, what's the joke? Like eighty percent of all statistics are made up. Um, so again, we, we want to we want to take these with a grain of salt, but I think there's some truth to this. Barna researched and it does tons of research all the time, particularly on religion. It says four out of ten Christians, not four out of ten people, four out of ten Christians, do not believe in a real devil. So I don't know what that means for you this morning. I don't know if that's accurate in a room like this, that four out of every 10 of you, quote, believe that Satan is not a living being, but just a symbol of evil. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that we believe that the devil is more than a symbol? Well, for one, the Bible tells us so. You see all over the Bible descriptions about what the devil does and what he's like. And again, I don't have time to get into all of them, uh, but again, uh, 
Mark, our senior pastor, uh, mentioned this in a sermon a couple weeks ago. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He's our adversary, he's our enemy, and he is prowling around like a roaring lion. He is seeking to devour. Uh, We know that he's a father of lies, John 8, verse 44. Jesus says that the father, the devil, is a father of lies. And then when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar. Okay? Uh, And then look, Ephesians. Ephesians has already talked about the devil. And you may have just glanced over it, but Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is the prince of the power of the air? It is the devil. And Paul says you were once his servant. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, right? You were once following the course of the word, following the devil himself. So do not be deceived. We are in a battle, and in this battle, we have an enemy. Yes, this battle is against sin, but it's not just against sin. It's against the devil himself, who is trying to get sin to consume us. So be strong. Stand against the devil. Third, do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Look at verse 12. Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Brothers, you are in a battle. You are in a fight. You are called to be strong in the strength of the Lord. You're called to stand against the devil. And you're called to know, look, this is not a battle against flesh and blood. But the truth is, that is the kind of battle that I think you and I fight every day. Though this battle is spiritual, though this battle is on a completely different terms, on a completely different battlefield, you and I have been duped into thinking this is just a flesh and blood battle. And so when you think about your sin this morning, and I want you to think about some consistent sin in your life, the kind of sin that keeps rearing its ugly head, the kind of sin that for 20 years you've been fighting. And I want you to begin to do inventory, not just about the sin itself, but how are you fighting that sin? And my guess is, like me, you've learned to fight that sin with flesh and blood. We have been conned. We've been tricked into thinking that the fight that we fight is a flesh and blood fight. And if you're fighting a flesh and blood fight, what kind of weapons do you take to that battle? You take flesh and blood weapons. And so if you see your sin as a flesh and blood issue, okay, then you're going to take a flesh and blood weapon to try to conquer that sin. So if you think your sin is just something in your flesh, it's a physical thing, it's just this thing that you can conquer on your own, then you're going to spend a lifetime using your own flesh and blood to try to conquer it. And here's where it gets even more tricky is some of those things are good things. We use words like accountability. Is accountability a bad thing? No, of course not. 
Can accountability in and of itself save you from your sin? It absolutely cannot. And not only that, but a lot of times when we say accountability, what we really mean is shame. In other words, I don't, my brother in Christ is holding me accountable. That's the, um, the nice way of saying it. The reality is my brother in Christ, I'm going to feel shame. <laughs> Whether or not he meant to shame me or not, I'm going to feel shame if I have to tell him what I did. Brothers, that's a flesh and blood fight. That's fighting against our sin because we just don't want to tell anybody about it. That's dark. And that's not what you've been given in Christ. Real accountability would not be shame-based, but it would be gospel-based. In other words, we'd be holding each other accountable, not just to the standard we've been given, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've been given, as Paul says in Ephesians, but we're holding each other accountable to the gospel that we already have. Jesus Christ died for you. He has set you free from your sins. Brothers, this is not a flesh and blood battle. This is a spiritual battle. He says against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you recognize that every single day when you wake up, you are walking into a spiritual battle? Wherever you find yourself, wherever you go, and there is a battle that is raging for your soul and the souls of everyone around you. A battle in the cosmic places against the spiritual forces of darkness, against Satan himself seeking to devour you and everyone around you, but also against Christ who already is victorious. He's already won. So do not fight against flesh and blood. But fight, fight against these cosmic powers. Fight against the spiritual forces of evil. This is a fight that we cannot win on our own, but it's a fight that has already been won in Jesus. So lastly, before you go to your table, so stand firm. Verse 13, he says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all, stand firm. Unfortunately, I don't have time to get into the armor of God um, piece by piece. Um, it would make a great series on its own. And some of you may have studied the armor of God before. It's a wonderful study. In fact, I, I, I couldn't encourage you more enough that maybe next week, instead of coming here on Tuesday morning, don't just sleep in. Maybe spend some time in verses 14 through 18 of Ephesians chapter 6. But before we go to our tables, this is just what I want to mention. In the same way that we learn to be strong on our own, I think we learn to put on armor as men. We put on our own armor. And because we think this fight that we're in is a flesh and blood fight, we learn to put on our own kind of armor that we fight with. Well, our own kind of helmet, our own kind of shield. Right? And so as you look at this, uh, for example... Verse 14, put on the breastplate of righteousness. We learn to put on a breastplate of self-righteousness, right? Of what it looks like to be righteous in ourselves. 
Uh, verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish with all flaming darts of the evil one. We learn to just have thick skin, uh, to defend ourselves, to fight fire with fire, uh, to put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We learn to fight with completely different weapons. And what I want to leave you with this morning, brothers, is that you cannot take up the armor of God unless you lay your own armor down. You need to begin to take off the armor that has surrounded your own hearts and put on the armor of God to put on the breastplate of his righteousness and take off your self-righteousness, to learn what it means to fight with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, instead of your own intellect and your own cunning and your own ability. You have been called to stand firm. And what I want you to recognize as we go to your tables is you've been equipped to stand firm. Not to do on your own, but God has already given you all of this in Jesus Christ. He has given you every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Every single piece of the armor of God, if you are a Christian this morning, you already have it. You've already been made righteous. You've been already been given the gift of salvation. You've already been given truth. You've already been given peace. And yes, you have already been given the word of God. So how do you stand firm? He's given us his word. He's given us prayer. We pray and we read God's word, not because this is some chore for us to check off a box or feel guilty because we haven't done it enough. We pray and we read God's word because we're in a fight. We need to take up the armor of God, the sword of the spirit in that fight, and the daily go to war, go to battle, knowing that we are strong, not with our strength, but in the strength of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let me pray for you, send it to your tables. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to begin to do the hard work, which is, um, if we're all going to be honest this morning, it's, almost too, it's way too early for this kind of stuff, uh, to take off this armor of the flesh, take off our self-righteousness, the lies that we tell ourselves and tell others, to take off the weapons that we wield, thinking that this is just a flesh and blood battle, and to begin to put on the armor of God. Help us to see that there is a real devil who does seek to devour us. And this morning, in the power and might of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we claim that power for ourselves. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand firm against the evil one, to daily fight the fight of faith and to see that you are our warrior fighting this battle on our behalf. We pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ, not our strength, and his strength alone. Amen.